If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible under the seats in front of you, there's probably a blue Bible. You're welcome to grab one of those. And uh, if you don't have a Bible in a version or a translation that you easily understand, that is our gift to you. I want you to just take it home. Uh, If you open up the front cover and it still has a Bridge Community Church stamp in it, some of our older uh, ones did, um, you can get a different one or you can take that home and just scribble it out. Uh, it's okay. We're not, we're not thinking that you're stealing or anything. We want you to have a copy of the Word of God because the Word of God tra- transforms and changes our life. Um, it is really great to be back with you all this week. Had an opportunity last week to, uh, to be out. And on su- Sunday, my wife and I ran down to Philadelphia for a little fun and an awesome place to go to dinner uh, celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. So we're really excited about that. Yes, thank you, thank you. I notice when I ask people if they have any idea what our anniversary year is, um, that there's always a pause uh, because they look at me and then they look at her. They look at me and then they look at her. And then they pick a low number. Last week the lady was like 16 and we're like, no, 25. And she didn't say this, but I knew she was thinking, well, I looked at you and I would have thought 25, but I looked at her and I had to go lower. So that's why. So it just, I just know that that's what happened. She didn't say that, but I just know that's the way it is. So 25 years and we're, we're blessed to be, well, we're just blessed. So um, we are so excited to be back with you guys. This is going to be a fun day. Um, it's already been a fun day, but this is going to be a fun series that we're continuing. We are in the middle of a series in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 is where we are today. We're doing a series called Overcomer, Seven Letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And if you've never uh, had any experience or know anything about this, um, this is a great opportunity to do a personal inventory of yourself and your spiritual health. Now, I can tell you right away that, that the seven letters are written to churches. So there's an assumption that's being made in all of these letters that the people that are being spoken to have professed faith in Jesus Christ or at some point they professed Christ Or when the church was planted, they professed uh, faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not really speaking in each of these letters. The letters aren't really written to unbelievers or people that have not experienced what it's like to follow Jesus. But the seven letters were written by Jesus. We see this in Scripture. In the beginning, in chapter 1, we saw that it was written by Jesus, given to the Apostle John. John wrote these letters down, put them together, and they were sent via messenger to the seven different cities that we see Uh, across Asia Minor. And each one of these letters were specific to the spiritual health of what was happening in each one of those churches. And I think what's so awesome about this uh, is that each one of these churches could be us at some point in our spiritual walk. Now, instead of us looking at the broader church and saying, which one is bridge today? Let's ask ourselves which one we are. Because if we know who we are, and and hopefully um, we're one of the positives and not one of the negatives. But if we are one of the negatives or one of the difficult churches uh, that he spoke to uh, rebuke and correction to, if we adjust that by changing us because we're part of the church, it influences the larger church. And then the church impacts the community. So that's what I want you to focus on again today. Let's not try to figure out who the bigger church is. Let's try to say, does this apply to me today? And if so, what should I do about it? So this morning, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, the fifth church in the list. Uh, we've covered Ephesus. We've looked at Smyrna. Um, we looked at Pergamum. Last week, Pastor Rob talked about Thyatira. Today, we are looking at the church of Sardis. 
the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and talk about why the message of Sardis applies to us as well today. Um, Beginning in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, okay? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we'll stop there for a second, and I want to make sure that we understand what's happening here. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him. Who is he? Jesus. These are the words of Jesus, okay? Because he's the author of these letters, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this is actually really important because every letter has an introduction that is specific to every city. It's not a general introduction for each one. When the letters were written, Jesus spoke instructions specifically to each city and addressed some of their issues in the introduction. He brought solutions to their problems through some of their introductions. And what he's saying here is, Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits of God. Okay, now what are the seven spirits of God? He's actually referring to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And if you reference back in Isaiah chapter 11, we're not going to go there, but I'm just going to read it for you, that the Spirit of God in Isaiah chapter 11 has six different attributes that he mentions. That the Holy Spirit is a spirit of wisdom. He's a spirit of understanding. He's a spirit of counsel, spirit of strength, a spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And fear isn't to be afraid of the Lord. Fear is to revere the Lord to recognize, not to be fearful of him and be afraid of him, but to revere him and be reverent to the Lord. So there's six different attributes that we see there. And then the seventh is simply the Holy Spirit himself. And in scripture, seven is the number of completeness. You see that through the Old and the New Testament. So what the writer is saying here, and what John is penning, uh, talking about Jesus, the words that you're about to to, to read come from Jesus, and he is the one that is given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. All of the Holy Spirit is with Jesus. He has it all. And scripture actually says he's the only one that was given the Spirit of God without measure. So he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's important because the Holy Spirit is also synonymous with authority and power. Because if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have no power, we have no authority. So he's saying, first and foremost, the one who has the ability to influence with authority and power is Jesus because he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then the second piece, he says, is the seven stars. And the seven stars, you know, if you've been following with us, the seven stars refer to the seven different pastors or leaders or leadership in every one of the cities. So what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus holds the fullness of the Holy Spirit power and authority, and he also holds the leaders in his hands. Because who's the one that builds the church? Jesus does. Man cannot build a church without the influence of Jesus. When he changed Peter's name from Simon to Cephas, he said, upon this rock, because Cephas means rock, Simon, upon you, I will build my church, he said, and the gates of hell won't prevail. So this is important to remember as he's writing to this church in Sardis, he's saying, you're listening to a letter or reading a letter that comes from the one that is the fullness of the Holy Spirit, all power and authority comes from him, and all of the leadership is under his control because he's the one that builds his church, okay? So we're going to move on. Look what he says after that. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, there are some letters that we've actually read before that I wouldn't mind getting if I was in a church during that time. 
And if we knew that Jesus was going to write a letter to Bridge Community Church, there are some parts of letters that I'd say, yeah, I want to read it. Um, This isn't one of them. In fact, there is no commendation to the city of Sardis, to the church of Sardis. Some of the letters we've talked about have a mixture of rebuke and commendation, praise and correction. This one is only correction and rebuke. So if you're the people of Sardis, if you're the church of Sardis, you hear the news, the messenger's bringing this letter, they come in, the church gathers, and they read this letter. And he says, Jesus is telling you, church, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's a pretty powerful statement. I call today's message Church of the Living Dead because it is possible in our culture and in our world to be a church today and look alive on the outside but be dead on the inside. And this is exactly what Sardis was doing. On the outside, they had examples, they had traditions, they had a structure that looked alive. And people could see it from the outside and say, wow, something's happening in that church. But when Jesus looks at it, and we see all through the word, God's never interested in just what we do on the outside. He always is interested in what's happening in our heart. Because what happens in our heart actually eventually comes out. So he's more interested in what's happening in our heart. And what he's saying is, on the outside, people see life. They see gatherings. Maybe they saw church services. Maybe they saw people helping poor people. Maybe they saw people singing songs or reading scripture. Jesus looks right to the core of their heart and said, all this stuff that you're doing on the outside, you have a reputation of actually being alive, but you guys are totally dead. Now, the crazy thing about this is that Sardis, unlike some of the other churches, was not led astray and corrupted by heresy. Like in some of the weeks we've talked about heretical teaching where people would come in and start teaching certain things to say, here's what we need to do, Jesus plus. Jesus plus this equals real spirituality. Some of the churches were doing that and they were, they were um, corrupting the truth of the word and adding poison so that the message was corrupted. Sardis was not a victim of corruption. Sardis was not forced to endure persecution. In fact, when you look at the way Sardis was actually built, their very city said fortress. Look at this picture with me of Sardis. This is actual shot of Sardis that exists today. These are the ruins of the city of Sardis. And what you're looking at is a hill um, where the green is, and the hill slopes up 1,500 feet to a plateau where the city was actually built. And then there were walls that went around three different spots, three different areas around the city. Just like so you can see, there's three different walls, the one on the back side, the front, and then the other side. And this city had a reputation of being impenetrable. You could not get into this city. I mean, could you imagine being uh, an enemy trying to get into a city that was like that and you start 1,500 feet below the city's plateau? Uh, pretty incredible. So they didn't have the issue associated that other churches had, like false teaching. They didn't have issues like persecution. They were actually pretty secure. Sardis's problem is that they were spiritually asleep. That they took what they learned and what was built from the past and they continued to try to live off of it today. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, when I worked at um, the pharmaceutical company at Wyeth Pharmaceuticals down in Radnor, um, I would take the, nor- the Northeast Extension home every day. 
And uh, anyone ever travel the Turnpike all the time, Northeast Extension? Look at some of you guys are like, travel, right? I mean, it, depending on what time of day you get it, it could be really bad. And I would drive that eight years. I drove that, and I was driving up. It was a hot summer day, and and I had a car that had a gas gauge that didn't work right. Anybody have a gas gauge in a car that doesn't work right? You know how you do this, right? You know, you don't pay attention to the needle. You look at your mileage. You look at your odometer. So I knew how many miles I could go on my car before I needed to fill up. And I was like, I'm not fixing that because you have to drop the tank and take the sending unit out. And it was a big mess. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to look at the odometer. It's an older car. So I would drive home and I was looking at it and it was getting there. Like it was pretty low, but the gauge had absolutely no no uh, truth to it, so I just had to ignore it. But I easily had like 20 or 30 miles left. Well, I'm two miles from the exit, the Lansdale exit, and my car starts bucking and starts doing some crazy stuff, and it just dies on me, and I pull over. And I'm on the side of the road, and I'm going, I think I just ran out of gas. I'm like, I can't run out of gas. I have 20 or 30 more miles left. And then it occurred to me that I had my air conditioning on all the time because it was the middle of the summer. And for those of you that don't know this, if your air conditioning is on, it lowers your miles per gallon. So, so you come to church and you hear technical stuff that you never thought you'd get, right? So, so every time you use the air conditioning, and I remember that as a kid, like we had a, a little rabbit when I was a kid, not an animal, a car. And, and we'd, we'd drive places and the car was so little, like, and it was so low on power that we couldn't go up a hill with the air conditioning on because the car would be like, really? And, and we would sit there and we would pretend that we were rowing up hills when people would go by. It was crazy. Seriously, as a joke, we would do that. Um, but I realized when I was younger, when you put the air conditioning on, it sucks more power out, drops your gas mileage. That's what happened to me. So I actually did run out of gas two miles from the exit. So I was like, what am I going to do? Because I don't want to get stuck on the turnpike. You know, if someone wants to help you, they've got to go down 10 miles, turn around, come back up 10 miles, and you only get the one towing company and they're really expensive. So I was like, all right, I'm like, God, help me get back off this road. I'm like praying for gas in my tank or something. Um, started the car up again, started up. And I was like, maybe stopping and going, like swished gas around in the tank and it got into the hose. I don't know. So I was like, it started up again. So I got excited. I started up, so I started accelerating. And I went as fast as I could go. And then the car went clug, 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 clug and died. And I kicked it in a neutral. And I was doing like 65 miles an hour in neutral with like a, like a half a mile left to go. And I'm watching the sign get closer. And I'm like, please let me make it. Please let me make it. And I got off the exit and I got like within 200 feet of the toll booth so I could get out, go get a gas can up at the top of the, of the hill, go back to my car, fill it up and go home. I'm telling you this story, okay, one, because get your gas gauge fixed, okay? <laughs> That's super important. I want you to think about that. That's really important because um, you don't want to do what I did. Um, if you don't do that, too, get AAA or some other kind of company that can help you. Um, but three, and this is the most important thing, nobody going up the road with me knew that my car was dead. I was 60, 65 miles an hour going up the road in neutral. My wheels were spinning. My lights were on. My hands were on the wheel, and I was steering. And people would drive by me, and they had no idea my engine wasn't running. You know, there are a lot of churches in this world that could say the same. People look, and they see an appearance of the outside that looks like there's life, but there's nothing going on inside. And Jesus looks to the heart of us and he says, I am not as interested about your deeds. We all know, if oh, I know in scripture, that when my heart is right before God, the deeds come because giving and doing is an overflow of what 
God wants us to be about. We give because he gave. We love because he first loved. It's always a response. We worship because he's worthy of worship. It's always a response to who God is. We don't do it to make something happen. But in that moment, I was reminded, and I'm reminded again today, that there can be churches, there can be believers, or maybe even unbelievers, who are part of churches. And when it began, it began well. And a generation went through and died, and the next generation took over, and the passion that existed when the church began was stripped away and taken away. Sardis was a dead church, even though they, were, they had the appearance of being alive. Pretty powerful. Sardis, this is incredible, Sardis was only about 30 years old. The church in Sardis was only about 30 years old when it was dead, and Jesus called it a dead church. This is a dangerous thing that we need to be aware of today because we can very easily use the past as the thing that drives our future where we live off the blessings and the glory of the past and we don't continue to keep ourselves close and intimate with God. We look back at what happened and we don't just celebrate the past. We use all the resources from the past and continue to use that even though we are dying on this side. We've seen this in churches, even in our fellowship and other fellowships, where there are churches that are still alive. I've heard stories of them and I met with other pastors and leaders where they'll say things like, well, we're getting really, really close to have to closing our doors and nobody's really coming and people aren't really giving like they should be giving or we want them to give. And then someone in their church dies and leaves them an inheritance. This happened like a couple years ago. I, one church, they left them like hundred and fifty dollars or $200,000. And they were like, yay! And I was like, no! They're like, why aren't you excited for us? I said, because you're already dead! That didn't go over well. But what I talked to them about, and that's one situation, I was like, you're going to take this gift, and you're going to continue to drain that money over and over. Why? Because there's something in your church that's dead that needs to be changed. You need to reinvent yourself and do something different and get back to the foundations of the gospel. Get back to the foundations of the truth of God's word. Money doesn't fix the problem. It only delays the inevitable. You hear me? This is so important. And we have to ask ourselves that question over and over again. So the church, and going back to the introduction, which I think is really awesome, but the church in Sardis forgotten who they were because they weren't the ones 30 years later that planted that church. They weren't the ones 30 years later that sought God and in prayer and in fasting and hearing God move amongst them, seeing people saved, seeing people baptized, seeing people walk away from lives of sin. They weren't the church that experienced that. They were the next generation of believers. And what they did effectively was they ejected the Holy Spirit from their church. And a church that ejects the Holy Spirit from their church is not a church at all. That's the foundational issue with the church of Sardis. They took the Holy Spirit and they said, you are no longer welcome in this place. There's really only one chair in a church and Jesus actually sits on it. This is a bad example of a throne, but just stick it with me. If Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the question that I ask you and I ask myself is, is he welcome in this place? Is he given the priority and the throne in this church? Or when we look 
around us do we see the, church, the seat being empty? Well, Jesus, we love you, but you know, uh, there's things that you say and do, Jesus. There's things that he said which are kind of controversial. There are things that Jesus did that really got people upset. There are statements that Jesus made that got people upset with him. And yet he loved more than any of us would ever be able to love. We always talk about the grace and we need grace and we need to have God's grace and we need to love like Jesus. But let's never forget that Jesus said, hey, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. Ooh, that's hard for me to hear because the church in Sardis had this problem. And when the first generation dies and the next generation takes over, if they don't still welcome the Holy Spirit into the primary position of the church, then there is an absence of wisdom. There is an absence of understanding. There's an absence of counsel, an absence of strength. You do it yourself, not in his strength. There's an absence of knowledge and an absence of fear or reverence toward God. And then we become the ones who run the church and not the Holy Spirit. And again, forget the big building or the building itself. Think of ourselves. It applies to each one of us. We forget who runs our lives if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to be the one that speaks to us. It's really powerful and it's dangerous if we forget who we are. I had a friend of mine a couple of years ago. I was speaking uh, to a friend of mine in a, in a local church and we were, we were talking about ways to connect churches in our community. And um, we've, we've done different things as churches. You know, a couple weeks ago, we did a prayer walk in Lansdale with a bunch of churches. And that was cool. And we had this conversation a couple of years ago when there are so many different churches in our community of different fellowships and denominations. And, and yet many times we feel so segregated and separate. And some of the people don't even know the other people. And, and we said, how can we find some things to come together on? And, and let's really do something in unity with some of our community of churches. And we were talking about the way to do that and what the right thing would be and what would be something that we could connect on. And I remember talking to one of my friends in that meeting and I said, well, why don't we start with some foundational things? Because every time you want to have a meeting of churches in the community, people want to make it an interfaith meeting where it's not just about you serving Jesus, but everyone else that's spiritual should come to the meeting too. And I said, "Mm, we're not going to do that yet. We're not going to do that now. We're going to start with what we all believe. So Christian churches regardless of denomination, let's start with something that I think that we all agree on. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's the word of God. That's what it says. He said, I'm the way. I'm the way is what he said. I can tell you in my human nature, I don't like that. Because what that says is, Paul, you're not the way and you don't know the way. I'm the way. And that makes me want to go like that. And I'm like, I I can figure it out. And Jesus says, no, you can't. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So pride kind of raises up in me when I hear that. And people don't like to hear that there is an actual way. So I talked to them and I said, how about this? All our Christian churches, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And one of my friends kind of put his head down and he smiled a little bit and he says, well, I believe that there are some people in churches in this community that won't agree with that statement. And I said, really? And he goes, yep. He goes, there are Christian leaders in this community that don't agree with that statement. And I thought to myself, what have we become? The Christian church is supposed to make an impact on our community. And we don't even agree that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because we're alive on the outside and we're dead on the inside. Listen, if Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life, there's no power in what we're doing here today. Zero. Zero. 
We can serve all we want, but without the message of the gospel of Christ, it has no impact. A friend of mine told me a few years ago, and I'm going to share this story, but it is not at all in any way a critique on the local Mennonite community, but he was Mennonite, so I had to share this story because he was convicted and challenged me um, in my heart with this. A number of years ago, this friend of mine was uh, working in Philadelphia, and he was working with a church leader in Philadelphia, and he was a Korean Presbyterian man. And they were talking about some business-related things, and in the process of the, commu- of the conversation, the Presbyterian pastor found out that my friend was a Mennonite. And he was excited because he's never met a Mennonite in person. <laughs> this is what he said. He was like, you're a Mennonite? And he was talking about all this stuff, and it was great. And he was like, wow, like it just elevated me. Like he wasn't sitting on the chair, he was standing on the chair. Like, and he was really excited. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, we love Mennonites. And, I'm like, and he said, why? And he goes, because when you came to do work in my country years ago, when the Mennonites came, they built buildings. They fed people. They gave homes to people that were homeless. They gave food to people that were hungry. They met basic needs, and they changed the way that we saw life. They helped us in significant ways. And he was like, oh, that's really good to hear. And he was so encouraged. And the man did say at the end, he goes, I have one question to ask you, though. He said, are you a Christian? And he said, what? And he said, are you a Christian? He goes, I don't understand. He goes, do you know Jesus as your Savior? And my Mennonite friend looked at him, and he said, I don't understand. And he said, well, all the years that they came and served us, they never spoke the gospel. They gave and they served and they changed our way of life, but they never brought the message of Jesus. He said it was when the Presbyterians came that they brought the message of the gospel. And he said, and that's why everyone in my city, like South Korea, goes, they're, all, they're, like, they're Presbyterians because the Presbyterians are the ones that brought it to our town. And he said, if the Mennonites came after feeding us, brought the gospel message, we'd all be Mennonites. <laughs> a Mennonite Korean, what does that look like? You know, I like to see that. That would be funny. Fun. I love that. You know, so many different varieties, a melting pot of people. All I'm saying about this is that the foundation of the church cannot change. If the foundation of the church changes, we can look good on the outside, but be dead on the inside. This week, we will have uh, on the calendar, we will cross the, the, board, the boundary from October to November. And October 31st, for a lot of people, uh, is uh, Halloween. Yay. Um, I could care less for the holiday. I think it's a bad holiday, personally, and I think we celebrate evil. But that's another message for another time. I'm not judging you if you're doing whatever you're doing. I'm just saying I don't like it um, because there's a lot of stuff there that's not helpful. Um, but in the Christian church, in the history of the Reformed church, October 31st, was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the wooden door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And the 95 theses that he wrote was specifically addressing the issue we're talking about because he was Catholic and he saw the Catholic Church and all the good of the Catholic Church and he saw the beauty of the things. His love for Christ was so incredible, but he did something that maybe others said he probably shouldn't have done and he actually read the book of Romans. And the book of Romans talked to, uh, talked to him and spoke to him about grace, that we are saved by grace through faith. Grace through faith is the whole message that it is not something we can do on our own or with our own merit, but the message of grace comes from God and God alone. And what he did by nailing this on the board, and there were 95 different points he was going to dispute and he was wanting to to debate with other people. And the whole purpose of why he did this 
was to challenge the Catholic Church to get back to the foundations of the church, the early church. Because what the church was doing at that point where they were saying messages and sending messages to people. Most people couldn't read the scripture because it wasn't in a language they understood. So what they were saying was, if you want to have your sins forgiven, you can pay an indulgence, it was called. And you would take a coin and put it in a box. And when the coin hit the little bell inside the box, your sins were forgiven. And people would pay all this money to be forgiven of their sins. And they had to go to somebody to do that. And Luther read Romans and he said, we've got it all wrong. We're teaching people to build a business and that we can do it on our own strength. But the message of the gospel is the message of grace through faith. And to challenge people and to challenge the Catholic Church not to abolish the church, but to reform the church. That's why we call it the Reformation. And from the Reformation movement came all the Protestant churches because they protested the Catholic Church. So that's what happened. And I'm telling you this this morning. You're like, okay, what's the point on that? We are a byproduct of that. But if we're not careful, we can become just like every generation before us. The church that looks back and remembers what the first generation did. Oh, I remember what my grandparents did and they walk with Christ. I remember when our church was first birthed and all these great things happened. And then the next generation comes and the next generation comes and they get further and further and further away from the intimacy that Jesus wants us to have with him. And now it becomes a machine and eventually becomes a monument because it dies. God doesn't want us to live that way. Do you believe that this morning? He doesn't want you and I to live like that. He wants us to live alive. He wants us to change the way we think if there are parts of us that are dead when they should be alive. And he gives us a solution beginning in verse two. He talks to Sardis and this is what he says. Even though they have a reputation of being alive, they're actually dead. And look at verse two, look what he says. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is a very emphatic call to the church that looked alive but was dead. And what he's saying to this church was, wake up. You need to wake up. You need to get out of your slumber, get out of your sleep, get back to the things that matter, get back to the truth. We can't get away from the fact, guys, we can't get away from the fact that there are parts of what it means to be a Christian that will stand in the face of our culture. We cannot get away from that. And a church that tries to just get along with the culture is a church that will lose all of its effectiveness because the Holy Spirit will be ejected from the church. It is not our responsibility to change every individual. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit drives, determines, and gives us wisdom and knowledge, strengthens us. He is the one that touches the heart of each person. But the danger that I've seen happen in churches, and I think even within our own church, I'm like, where would we fall with some of these things? There are issues right now in our culture. There are struggles right now across our culture where we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to stand on God's truth? but still walk in grace and love. Still walk in grace and love. If I see another Christian picket anything, I'm going to beat him over the head with a Nerf ball or Nerf bat. You know, a couple of us were in D.C. a few weeks ago, and 
you know, we were at the Supreme Court and they had this big thing going on and just people picketing and screaming and yelling at each other. And I'm going, Jesus wouldn't pick it. Nope, Jesus would not pick it. They got it all wrong. They messed it up. It doesn't mean that we can't stand for what we think God's word says, but we better be walking with grace, truth, and love. Are you with me? It's such a fine line, but we have to be okay to understand that there's a place. And he says, wake up. Wake up. This would have been so relevant to the church in Sardis. Because if you remember the picture I showed you with the wall, they had a history of being impenetrable. But there were two different instances where they actually lost their city and the city was conquered. The story is similar in both in the way that they got in. But I'll share the first one. When King Cyrus of Persia went after Sardis, he surrounded the city to lay siege to it. And they didn't know how they were going to get in because that's what they were looking at. But into the evening, one of the soldiers watched a soldier on the wall drop his helmet. True story. Helmet dropped to the ground and it rolled all the way down the hill. And the soldier watched the guy come down through a little secret door and make his way down to the, to the hill, pick up his helmet, went back up the hill in a very specific, easy way and get back into the city very clean, no issues. So what did that soldier do? He grabbed a couple of his buddies and he did the exact same thing. And in one night, the city was destroyed. In one night, the city was destroyed. You know what was really amazing when you think about this? They were so confident in their ability to protect their city. The entire city, according to history, was asleep. And they had one guard on the wall when all of Cyrus's army was surrounding them to lay siege to their city. Think about that. One guard was awake and the whole city was asleep. So it makes sense when Jesus writes this note to the church, they would have known the history. And what he, would he, what he was saying was, wake up, get out of your sleep, get out of your slumber. You're not as good as you think you are. You are in danger. You're in danger. Get up, fortify what needs to be fortified, he's saying. But if you don't, I'm gonna come like a thief. And you won't know the time that I'm going to come. It's a very strong warning to the church in Sardis. So if we have a desire this morning to wake up, maybe you're asking yourself this morning this question. Maybe you're a believer, a follower of Christ, and you're saying, yes, on the outside, I am a believer and I'm doing the things that God wants me to do. But you know, there's something in my heart that's dead. There's an area of my heart that's dead. I still believe in Jesus or I'm following Jesus, but there's something dead in me. How do I wake up? How do I wake up and get out of that and go back to where I need to go? Three quick things I want to mention to you. Number one, depend on the Holy Spirit, not ourselves. Depend on the Holy Spirit, not yourself. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Remember what you heard was the message that Jesus said in the letter. Who did you rely on when you first became a follower of Christ? The Holy Spirit has a very broad responsibility and lives in the life of every Christian. But may we never forget that when Jesus talked to his disciples, he said, it's good that I'm here, but I need to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send a counselor and the advocate, meaning the Holy Spirit, and he will be here. And it's a good thing that I leave so he can come. And then in Acts chapter 1, he says, wait in the upper room, wait until you're clothed with power on high and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit fills all these people and their lives are forever changed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit in their heart is ignited and alive. And he's the one that gives them strength. He's the one that convicts them of sin. He's the one that gives them wisdom, counsel, hope, and comfort. The Holy Spirit is the one that changed them. We have to be people who depend on the Holy Spirit today. Now, how do we do that? 
It's kind of related to number two. Number two is deal with sinful behavior. How do we wake up? We need to deal with sinful behavior. And this is where it gets a little squirrely and sometimes in our lives because there are some things that we just don't want to deal with. We think we can come to God dirty, which he tells us to come to him as we are. But then he says, I forgive you. I restore you. Now stop doing what you were doing. That's the piece that we sometimes forget. When Jesus saw the woman that was caught in adultery, he said, the first one of you without sin is the one to cast the stone. We're so good at picking stones up and wanting to throw it at people. That's just not even what we're supposed to do. He was the only one that could have thrown the stone according to his standard, and yet he didn't. So he looked at her and said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're all gone. And he said, then neither do I accuse you. Go. And then what did he say? Sin no more. And that's the part that we need to remember in each one of our lives. Each one of us has to be willing to ask the Spirit of God who lives in us, if we're believers, what areas of our lives are sinful? What areas of our lives need to change to look more like Jesus? And the Holy Spirit is either going to grow when we rely on him and we depend on him. He grows by obeying or he gets grieved or squelched when we disobey. As part of Martin Luther's 95 thesis, one of the points he said was specifically regarding repentance because maybe you struggle with what repentance looks like. Listen what he said about repentance. Regarding repentance, this is what Luther said. It does not merely mean solely inner repentance. True repentance is not solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. What he's basically saying is, if the repentance that you have is genuine, you won't just hear about it in your heart. You'll see it with your life. Mortification of the flesh means you're going to kill it. You're going to die to the things that you know are not sin, that are sinful. The inward change will be reflected in your outward lifestyle. Are you with me? That's what he talks about, and that's how we need to deal with sinful behavior. When we deal with sinful behavior, What was dead in us can be made alive again in Christ. We need to deal with sin personally, but we need to remember as a church that the church is a body. And we're so individualistic in our culture, it seems it's getting harder and harder for us to actually have community with people as we have varieties of community which are pseudo-community. Social media is not real community. It's a form of of community, but it's not real community. Someone can't hold me accountable through Twitter or Instagram. I'm not going to change anyone's mind by posting all of my thoughts and vomiting all over the internet. I might get people mad at me, but I'm not going to change anyone's ideas by doing that. But it is a fun thing to watch and laugh sometimes. We need community. And we need to remember that when we deal with our sin, we don't just help ourselves. We also help our brothers and sisters in in the community of faith. Because we are a community of faith in a church. And the church is a body, just like the Apostle Paul says. And just to use this illustration, sin is like a cancer in our bodies. And when you talk to people that have cancer or have had family members with cancer, the one thing that nobody wants to hear is that they're cancer metastasized. Nobody wants to hear that because metastasized means spread to different areas of the body. And that is like a death sentence for anybody with cancer. It's metastasized and your chances of survival go down a lot. Can I tell you in the church, when there are pockets of sinful behavior, 
it affects you and it affects the people around you. It affects you and your family and your friends and it will affect more people if you don't deal with it because it is a cancer. And that's how an alive church can become a dead church. And God wants us to deal with sinful behavior so that we can experience life and victory. The last thing I want to mention as the worship team comes up and we get ready to close today is that we shouldn't just depend on the Holy Spirit or deal with sinful behavior. And this is really important as well. We need to expect God to respond. If you depend on the Holy Spirit, if you allow him to work in your life, if you deal with sinful behavior and say, I'm going to die to that, so the inner and the outer are doing the exact same things, I'm going to change my behavior. If you do those things, expect God to respond. Verse 4, look what Jesus says in this letter. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Isn't it interesting that even though there were some in the church that were still alive, Jesus called the whole church dead? He said there are some that are still alive, some that are still not soiled their clothes, which is an Another way of saying that they're still walking in righteousness with God and they're still alive and they are worthy of what they're going to receive. And then he gives an offer of hope to everyone who feels there's a part of their life that's dead in verse five. He says, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. What a great message of hope that we have this morning. A great message of hope to the church that each one of us, if there's an element of our life that's dead, can be made alive again. It doesn't matter if your area is so dead that you look at it and it's dead and withered and dried up and gone. God's promise to you is the same promise to me. It's the same promise to Sardis. If you will take what is dead and submit it to him, and change your ways, he will breathe new life into you. Isn't that awesome? That's the promise to every one of us, that he will breathe new life to each one of us. Would you take a moment and just stand with me, please? Pastor Brian's going to come up here to the front. And I mentioned earlier today, this is a water baptism service. The message of water baptism is that those who have given their lives to Christ show it to the world. The model we see through scripture is those who are saved choose Christ and then declare that the inward transformation is declared to the world by their attitude. Water baptism is our way of obeying Jesus' commands to say, when you trust in me, what you're saying in being water baptized is that you're dead unto your sin. Your sin kills you. We are all dead in our sins. We lay down into the grave like we do into the water. But then the water purifies us. Romans 6 says the water purifies us. We are forgiven of our sins and the water cleanses us and makes us whole. And then we come back out of the water. We're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And that's what we do when we make that declaration that who I am, who I am is a child of God. Who I am 
is a forgiven follower of Christ. Who I am is someone who is deeply loved and pursued by an awesome God. And I'm going to give my life to him as Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning and you've never been water baptized, but you're a follower of Christ, during this song, I'm going to invite you to come and go talk to Pastor Brian. And we're going to set you up. We're going to baptize you right here, right now. If you need a t-shirt, shorts, if you need any of that, we've got it all. You don't have to worry about it. And you can even take it home with you. You get to keep the shirt as just a a memorial of saying this was what I was wearing the day I went public with who I am in Christ. And can I tell you, if you're here today as well and you're not a follower of Christ, come and talk to us during the song. Say, I want to give my life to Jesus. How do I do this? And we're going to walk you through the process on how to do it. It's very simple. And then you can get baptized today as well. And we are going to celebrate with you. Amen. The team's going to sing. Would you join me as we pray? And as they sing, you're welcome to come and sit with Pastor Brian as we begin to prepare for water baptism. Father, I just pray that our hearts would be open this morning, that we would hear you, that we would obey you, and that your spirit would fill us and change us as we walk closer to you. In your name we pray.